Welcome to the Murder and Mystery Podcast. I'm your host, Summer, and today we have a guest host. I'm her husband, Scott. And we have a very interesting story about a serial killer out of Tulsa, which is very close to where we live right now. So, I guess we will get started. So, this killer's name is is Wayne Garrison. So, Wayne Henry Garrison was born August 26, 1959, to Julie Lowe. He grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in a neighborhood surrounded by family. And there really isn't much known about his childhood. You know, he was a normal kid, grew up surrounded by family, and, you know, everybody lived in the same neighborhood. He was surrounded by cousins, aunts, uncles, and stuff. But there were reports that Wayne began harming animals as a child, and he would poke chickens with the stick, and he would poke them until they were nearly dead. And his grandma would get on to him for that. His grandma found the body of a dog that he had nearly severed the head of. And he, when he was a child, he had begged for a rabbit. And when he was given one, because he was kind of a spoiled child and an only child, he was given a rabbit and he broke the rabbit's neck the very first day. Wow. Yeah. So that is one of the very early signs of serial killers. A lot of them do harm animals and stuff and he displayed those at a very early age but outside of that I mean as far as abuse and stuff there were reports that you know he really he never was abused that he was rarely spanked that he was treated very well by his family especially by his grandmother that you know there really wasn't anything going on that there wasn't any reason that really points to that serial killer things that we see a lot of times i guess he was the embodiment of mama tried then (laughs) right so his first murder occurred october 13th 1972 and he was only 13. So this was, um, like I said, October 13th. He was playing with his four-year-old cousin, Dina Dean. And at some point during the time that he was playing, he took a one-inch by 12-inch light blue cloth and tied it around her neck and continued to apply pressure until she died. Wow. And then he took her and hid her body so that nobody would find it. They said that it takes up to six minutes to strangle a person. So during this time, he watched his little four-year-old cousin struggle and watched the life drain out of her at the age of 13. Yeah. And then hid her beneath the crawl space underneath the home. So he, I mean, he was trying to get away with it. I mean, he tried. 
And then when the family realized that she was missing and they looked everywhere, they couldn't find her, so they called the police. And the police came and, you know, they're canvassing the neighborhood, they're looking around, they're questioning everybody that was at the house. And Wayne broke down and admitted what he had done and led them to the body. He claimed it was an accident that they were playing and he accidentally strangled her and she died. Accidentally strangled her. That's that's right. hard to believe. Right. So he was actually, he, he was convicted of killing her, but instead of going to um, prison, instead of being tried as an adult, he was tried as a juvenile and he was sentenced to a like a mental hospital in june on june 3rd 1974 he was given a pass from the hospital to come home and he's now 14 and at this time you know he comes home from the hospital and he's at home and during this time a three-year-old boy goes missing from next door yes he has a tie so he was last seen playing with Wayne. They were playing hide and seek and three-year-old Craig Neal was just gone. Mm. So his mother started looking for him, couldn't find him. Some people said that they had seen him with Wayne. She called the police and when the police got there, they quickly found the child's body in a garbage bag under Wayne's mother's house. He had smothered the little boy and cut off his penis. Hmm. This time, he was sentenced to four years in prison. However, on December 4th, 1974, there was a writ of prohibition, sorry, uh, against a juvenile court judge to prevent him from certifying Wayne Garrison from standing trial as an adult. So again, he was tried as a juvenile and was, was found to be a child in need of supervision once again. And this time he was sent to like a juvenile court and went back to his the central state hospital um there were no stipulations on being in the company of children there was he just there was just nothing i mean it was basically saying that he was a kid and should have been you know should have been raised better, that it wasn't his fault. So by the age of 14, he's murdered two children. So Wayne was released from the hospital on March 9th, 1977. And he had no, there was nothing. He was released, everything was gone. He, it was like nothing had happened. So he enrolled in high school and Art Fleek, 
his attorney for his first two murder trials, kind of became his mentor and was helping him. He helped him enroll in high school. He, you know, helped him kind of settle and wanted to help him start a life. So Wayne tried to blend in and he even asked a girl to prom and she agreed. However, he showed up at her house and his father opened the door and met him with a pistol and told him that he knew who he was, he knew what he had done, and he better leave. That's probably wise. Right? I mean, I wouldn't want him going out with one of my daughters. No. Uh, so, Wayne did eventually get married. He finished high school, he got married, he had a son. He opened a garage called Chopper's Body Shop, just a few blocks from his house in Tulsa, and he settled into a normal life. In the 80s, people kind of forgot what he had done. I mean, he had been a kid, time had passed, and, you know, he just, he kind of settled into this quiet life. So, then there was a third murder that occurred around him. On June 20th, 1989, Dorothy Farrar returns home from work to find her 13-year-old son, Justin Wiles, is not at home. So, Justin usually stayed home. Um, you know, school was out and, you know, it's summer and she worked and he hung around the house and usually would tell people where he was going if he left the house. I saw pictures of Justin because I watched this on Cold Case Files and he, although he was 13, he looked about 8. He was very, very young looking and you remember these first two murders were very young children. So he looked very young and he generally, like I say, he just stayed around the house. He would usually tell people where he was going, but and he didn't tell anybody he was going anywhere. Nobody knew where he was going. And they did a general search, called everybody that he would have known, and when they couldn't find him, Dorothy calls the police and makes a report and waits. Uh police couldn't find him you know they were looking and four days later fishermen at Lake Bixhoma in Bixby Oklahoma which is just a little south of Tulsa yeah suburb uh, of Tulsa yeah it's not very it's not far but it's not really close and this is outside of Bixby this is a lake so um, they found an arm and a hand sticking out of the mud, and it was partially wrapped in plastic. So these fishermen called the police, and the police came. They pulled this hand out and started looking, and they found another arm. And then they were talking to some more fishermen who mentioned having seen a mannequin head floating. They honestly thought that 
these police were there because somebody had dumped a mannequin in the lake. I mean, that would probably be, I don't know, I, I can see that. It's probably not every day that you go out fishing and you see a severed body. Right. I mean, would your first thought really be that's a human head floating by my boat? Probably not. But police, because they had found these other body parts, figured this was a human head. And they went to where they directed, and they found this head. Um, These body parts were of a child. And this head had wire wrapped around it, um, like this copper wire wrapped around it, and wrapped around a small stone. Not Not a big, not a little bitty stone, but not a big stone. But enough that probably sank the head at first until decomp kind of made it float up. They took these body parts out and as they were walking around the edge of the lake on the shore, they smelled something and came upon a shallow grave where they found a torso that was buried. Um, And again, the penis was missing. Definitely got an M.O. now. Right. So, it didn't take long for them to identify the body as Justin Wiles based on fingerprints and unique scars behind his ears from a surgery that he had had. Uh, So, because he had been missing from Tulsa, the Tulsa police took over from Bixby Police and they went of course and had to tell Dorothy what they had found and during this interview they were asking you know where did he go you know who did he hang out with all these questions that they'd probably asked before and she had mentioned some people before But in the course of this interview, she mentioned Wayne Garrison, that he liked to go to this local body shop and hang out with the owner, Wayne Garrison. And for most of the detectives, you know, they just made a note, but one of the older detectives on the case, this became a red flag. He recognized that name from the earlier cases, earlier murders. And so he brought this up. They go to Garrison's shop. And Garrison admits that Justin hung out there sometimes. And was actually even there the day that he went missing. Um, He was there about 11 that morning. And then Garrison says that he went to see an insurance agent. And then went to Sky Took Lake to go fishing. They kind of, you know, because he was there and stuff, they were, they got a search warrant. They were searching the, um, the garage. They found fingerprints and stuff. And he said, and somebody else said, another patron that was there in the garage said that he had seen Justin there. And that he had actually left with Garrison that day around noon. And when they got back to the garage, 
Justin was locked in the garage. And Garrison said, yeah, that sometimes, you know, he would be hanging around and he would forget that he was there. And he would sometimes get locked in for short periods of time and stuff. And then that he had been, he had invited him to go fishing and he had said no. And he had heard Garrison invite Justin to go fishing, but it wasn't at Sky Took Lake. It was at Lake, Lake Big Zoma. And this guy even said that he had seen Justin get in the car with him and drive off that day. Well, this guy took Lake and Lake Bixoma from Tulsa are opposite directions. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, police on this cold case show mentioned that most of them didn't even know Lake Bixoma existed. I didn't until you said something. I didn't until I'd seen that show. And we both grew up in Oklahoma. Mm. I, I had never heard of it. In fact, they said in the show that even in Bixby, most people don't go fishing in that lake. There's, I mean, there's a few people that, you know, a few fish, local fishermen, but it's not a heavily populated lake. So the fact that this man says that, you know, this is a place where he goes and it just happened to be where this body was found. It just was a huge red flag. So they start looking at him. I mean, there's all of this stuff. They also found a large hunting knife. They found wire, copper wire, identical to what was wrapped around his head in the back of his car. Uh, but all of this was very circumstantial. And while they're gathering their evidence, Wayne Garrison packed up his family and decided to move to North Carolina. So as he's doing this and they're moving to Charlotte, North Carolina, police started the detectives started scrambling for something that they could charge him with and the only thing they could find was a false insurance claim and so he was brought back to Oklahoma and sentenced for 18 months which he served nine of and was released so in 1989 he moved to North Carolina with his family Justin wasn't he wasn't forgotten um, there just wasn't any evidence. The trail had gone cold. Everything they had pointed at Wayne Garrison. But they didn't have enough. Um, the DA refused to charge because everything was circumstantial. So they packed up the case and it went in the cold case files. And it was just kind of hanging out there. And then in 1996, an 11-year-old boy goes missing in North Carolina. So while in Charlotte, North Carolina, um, you know, Wayne had gotten married. He had a son. And Wayne's son had become involved in Boy Scouts. And so Wayne became involved in the Boy Scouts. And of course, you know, 
The Tulsa police had contacted the Charlotte police and said, you know, keep an eye out on this guy and had given them a little bit of information on his background. But, you know, he was basically in a place where nobody knew him. And so he he was able to do things like that. People didn't snatch up their kids and hide them away when he came around. So he he got involved in the Boy Scouts. He got involved with these other kids, you know, through his child and stuff. And, well, he this boy went missing, and this boy lived near Wayne's house. And police, having remembered that, you know, Tulsa police had contacted them and had told them this, they went out to his house and they had kind of canvassed, you know, all the houses, but they had centered in on him. He was their first thought from the beginning. And they they went and talked to him and he was very nervous in being interviewed by police, which, I mean, I guess if police came up here and was asking me a whole bunch of questions, I'd be a little bit nervous. Yeah, I think a lot of times they talk about somebody being nervous, but um, I would think that almost anybody would be if they were interviewed by the police. I mean, I haven't even done anything wrong, and, and it would still be a little bit nerve-wracking. Right. Even, even when you see them coming around and asking questions, uh, it is a little bit different. Yeah. And, and like I said, I don't have anything to fear, uh, but it, it, it definitely can be a little bit nerve-wracking. Exactly. And so, I mean, he seemed nervous, but, you know, like I said, anybody would be nervous. And they didn't see anything. So they, they left. They barely got back to their office when Wayne called and said, This kid just stumbled into my house. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, right? <laughs> so they go back to Wayne's house. And Wayne is overjoyed, just so excited that he found this missing child. He even hugs one of the detectives. Mm. Yeah. And delivers this boy who is, has obviously been drugged. Um, is stumbling around, is falling asleep when they're trying to interview him. <laughs> He obviously didn't just stumble into this guy's house. I mean, he can barely stay awake long enough to talk to police. So, um, obviously, they they really have an idea that he had been there all along. And so, when they question Wayne, Wayne says, no. He wasn't here. I don't know. I just found him. He just showed up here. And so I called you. You know, he didn't admit to anything. But, of course, you know, after some time, the drugs wore off and the boy was able to start talking. And the story that the boy tells was a little bit different than what Wayne told them. He said that Wayne had you know, had manipulated him into running away. You know, he was part of the Boy Scouts and he had met Wayne through there and Wayne had told him that his family was bad 
and he would be better off if he were to leave his family and talked him into running away and coming and hiding out in his shed. And so he did. And police found candy wrappers and a pillow in the shed. Uh, it had been raining, and so there were footsteps, and including footsteps that matched the child's shoes in the mud outside the shed and also in the bathroom in the house. And so the kid said that after uh, dark, after late, that night after he'd gone in to the shed, um, Wayne had come out and had taken him and taken him into the bathroom where he had taken these shelves out of the garden tub. These, like they have this garden tub and there were these like built-in shelves on the side of the garden tub to hold like towels and stuff. He had pulled these out of the wall and there was a small crawl space in there and he tried to get him to stay in there got him up in there and then was trying to put the shelves back in and get him to stay in this little like crawl space and he was crying too loud <laughs> and so Wayne got him out and the kid said that he put him in what he described a chokehold to try and calm him down. And then later that next morning, that's when the police showed up because this was going on like in the middle of the night. The police showed up. And when the police were there, the kid was there and he was watching, but he had been threatened and his family had been threatened and he had been drugged and then I because he wasn't cooperating and police had already been called and they'd already been out there and I guess Wayne wasn't expecting him to be reported missing so quickly he had um, went ahead and called it in hoping that he could be the hero rather than be suspected but the family didn't want to get in the middle of all this um, they didn't really press any charges so Wayne pled guilty to giving painkillers to a minor and the abduction of a minor and was sentenced to three years in prison so Tulsa police learned about this in um, 1999, not long before he was released. They heard about this and they knew that this was their chance that they could maybe keep him put away because now they have two murders, another child abduction, and then the circumstantial evidence where everything points to this guy. If they could just get something concrete that could link him to Justin that day, they felt they could have enough to get him on this murder. So, they start working against the clock. 
to try and get something before he's released from prison in North Carolina. So they've got some new detectives on the case, fresh eyes, a ticking clock, and they start going through all this evidence. And what they find is a picture of a bruise on Wayne's arm. So back in 1989, when they had brought Wayne in to interview him uh, because he had been connected with Justin through the garage, he had a bruise on his arm. And he had told police that he and his brother had gotten into a fight and his brother had hit him with one of the tools from there in the garage. And there was a police report that had been filed within the days leading up to this, uh, to Justin going missing. And they documented the bruise. They took a picture of it. But it really just got kind of pushed in and forgotten in the pile of evidence. There wasn't really anything. They didn't look at it as anything major. So as they're going through this, one of the newer detectives on this case looked at that and said it looked like a bite mark. And that wasn't something that had ever been mentioned before. So they bring in this forensic dentist. And the dentist agreed this looked like a bite mark. So he get, they get with Justin's family who agrees to have the body exhumed. And they make uh, dental molds and stuff. And they start working that angle. Another forensic scientist is working on the wire. Because that was the other thing that they had. And he was hoping that they could find something using new technology to help prove that that wire came from Wayne's car. Because back in 1989, basically all they got was, this is very common wire that's made and sold to, you know, body shops everywhere. It's used in speakers. It's used in basically any type of car. So they start, this guy starts, um, this scientist starts looking and he finds a small little smudge of black on the wire. And then he finds some little smudges of black on the other wire. He compares it. And what he comes up with is that there is this, caulking that is used in speaker wire and obviously you have all different brands of this while well, using chemical analysis he was able to find that both of these came from were the same brand so he was able to match that these were the same brand and so what's the I mean, what's the likelihood that you would have these two that weren't connected at all, and yet it's the same brand? I mean... still seems kind of circumstantial. It is. But, I mean, a lot of circumstantial evidence is hard to ignore. It is. But, you know, it's circumstantial, but the kid was seen in the body shop that day, in the car with him... So, the guy said that he was going to this lake to go fishing that day where the body was found. 
there's just there's a lot of circumstantial evidence where everything points to him and nobody else but they were able to at least be able to say that there is a strong connection that this wire could be i mean not just this could be any any wire in any car well you know, at least we know that this wire used the same caulking that's, that was used. I mean, this... Like I said, it still sounds kind of circumstantial. But, right. But uh, a lot of times, you know, when there is smoke, there's fire. And there's certainly a lot of smoke in this case. Okay. So they, like I said, they had made the dental molds. Detectives, after they made the dental molds... They purchased a new casket for Justin, and they renewed their promise to not stop working until they found justice for him. And then they reburied his body very respectfully because they wanted the family to know they weren't going to stop working for this kid, that they had never forgotten, that they had always been working for him, and that they were going to figure out what happened to this kid. So this dentist, he starts working on these bite marks. And what he did was after he made these molds, he did find that Justin had this very unique bite pattern. And so he took the molds and he put them on these fire type tools and then he his lovely dental assistants got to roll up their sleeves and get bit by these molds that's above and beyond I'm sure <laughs> and then pictures were taken and the teeth patterns on these marks were compared to the bruise marks on the picture and they matched. And these were very unique, a very, very unique pattern. And it matched. So now you have dental marks, that bite mark that matches. You have wire that matches. You have witnesses that saw him with the child the day that the child went missing. Him tell a witness that heard him say that he was going to this lake where the body parts were found. A witness that saw the child in the car. They found fingerprints of this child in the car. So, they had enough evidence, finally, to get an arrest warrant. The day that Wayne Henry Garrison walked out of North Carolina prison, he stepped outside of the prison gates right into the custody of Tulsa police. He was arrested and extradited back to Oklahoma and charged with the murder of Justin Wilds. In December 2001, he was sentenced to death found guilty and sentenced to death for the murder. 
In 2004, he won an appeal, and his sentence was overturned, and he was, and it was changed to life in prison without parole. At this point, he agreed, he agreed to that, and at this point, he is still sitting in prison. Good place for him. Yep. And that is the murder of Justin Wiles and Tulsa's very own serial killer. It's too bad they didn't figure out who he was, you know, after the second child that he murdered. It's too bad they didn't do more. I mean, a child in need of supervision who's killed two children. He needs to. Needs a lot more than that. Steez called the Solway Firth Spaceman. I just showed you the picture. Have you had you seen it before? No. Had you ever heard of it before? No. Interesting. So I've been I've been seeing this for years, years and years and years. This is one of these that has been going around and is supposed to show proof of either aliens or ghosts, depending on who you talk to. So let's talk about the story behind this. So it was a beautiful summer day. In 1964, and Jim, Ann, and Elizabeth Templeton were out for a drive, and they came upon this beautiful spot, which was this, it was Solway Firth, which is like an inlet uh, estuary um, in Scotland, and they stopped to take pictures. And Jim took several pictures of his daughter in her new dress. Elizabeth, this is the daughter. And his wife, Anne, who was also wearing a pale blue dress. It's the 1960s. They didn't have digital cameras. He couldn't see what he was taking. He just took all these pictures in the bright, beautiful sunshine. He said that there wasn't anybody around. It was he and his family there. There was a car with a couple of people in it parked out there, but they were in the car. When he was taking the picture, he didn't see anybody else around. And so he really didn't expect anything. He got the pictures developed, took them home, sat down, starts going through them, and had a very unexpected surprise. There is a picture of his daughter sitting in a field, holding flowers, smiling prettily at her father, just as he had remembered it. But behind her is a figure that appears to be wearing a full jumpsuit and a helmet with a reflective shield that looks like an astronaut. Could you see that as being an astronaut? I could see it. I'm probably... enough of a skeptic to think that there's probably more going on but yeah it it looked like a space like an astronaut behind behind the girl so he I mean the family was just shocked 
they hadn't seen anybody else, much less an astronaut, out walking this field. And so they started showing this picture to everybody. It became dubbed the Solway Firth Spaceman. And it was reproduced and published in newspapers. Skeptics started checking the negatives for signs of tampering. The family was interviewed to see, okay, so what did you do? How did you make this picture? You know, was there somebody behind? Did you, you know, how did you do this? And they swore, I mean, all the way up until the time that Jim died, they swore they did nothing. They were just absolutely shocked. And even Elizabeth, being a little kid, was like, no, nobody was there. So this picture has been very, very popular and it's circled the internet. I've seen it for years and years. Uh, it's always really piqued my, you know, my curiosity. How, how did this happen? What was this? Was this, you know, is this a ghost? Is it an alien? an astronaut what's going on here because it makes no sense it really truly makes no sense there's an astronaut standing behind this little girl in the middle of a field <laughs> and it there just really didn't seem to be any explanation so i never really dug into this one um it was one that was interesting i had it on my list and so when I was going through and I was looking for a mystery, I decided to dig into it a little bit. And I did find a possible explanation that to me sounds very plausible. And I saw a picture um, where they kind of sharpened it, darkened it, and it really makes a lot of sense. And I'm gonna show you Scott, that picture right now. So you see the mom mm -hmm. right there and what she's wearing? And then right here where they've darkened it and it starts to show, you can kind of see a little more of where possibly that looks yeah, more it human. Looks, it looks like the mom. Yeah, it looks like the mom. So that's become a popular explanation. Uh, in the 2000s, some people started taking that photo and, you know, playing with it, darkening it, sharpening it. And as you did that, you start to see a little more detail in the figure. And it really looks like possibly the mom. But the family swore for years that they didn't do this but honestly what I think happened is that mom probably got up you know she has this short dark hair cut into a bob she's wearing this blue dress that in many of the pictures was kind of washed out in sunlight because it was really light blue it's bright sun um, I think she probably just got up and was walking around and accidentally walked behind as he snapped the picture. 
didn't realize that she had gotten in the way of the picture. It's kind of blurry. The dress is washed out because of the blur, because of the sunlight. That's the image that you got. And I think that is probably the explanation. She didn't remember. She didn't realize that she'd gotten in the way. She didn't think she had. And because of the way that the camera is set up, it doesn't show like the full range when you're looking through it. And he was focused solely on his daughter. He didn't see it. She wasn't standing there when he lowered the camera. So he didn't know she'd gotten in the way. And they never put the two together. That seems very plausible to me. That seems like a solid explanation. So that's my guess. That's the guess of a lot of people. But there are still some people out there that want to say it's a spaceman or a ghost. Well, you believe what you need to believe. But that is the Solway Firth Spaceman. An interesting little mystery. And that is our murder and mystery for tonight. So thank you, Scott, for joining us. No problem. And hopefully you'll join us for more. And we will see you next time. Bye.